Hey, Angela here. Before we begin this episode, I'd like to invite you to join our Substack community, where you'll get more founder profiles, exclusive behind-the-scenes content, first access to all my original work, and access to our community group chat. All you have to do is click the link in the description. I love and appreciate your support. It's awesome to see all your comments, email responses, and reactions. I'm happy to share this journey with you. Thanks for tuning in. I might have had a better shot having played college football of making it making five hundred thousand in the NFL than I necessarily I could have raised five hundred thousand for a company. And that's kind of crazy to think about. You're listening to Honey and Hustle, a video podcast that inspires the dreamers creators, and hustlers to make a business from their passions. I'm Angela Hollowell, and I'm a visual storyteller based in Durham, North Carolina. I sit down with creative entrepreneurs, nonprofit founders, and small business owners as they share their stories, the lessons they've learned throughout their careers, and how they've worked to make a positive impact. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Today, I am joined by Time and Keith. They are the co-founders of Resilient Ventures based here in the Research Triangle Park area. Just kind of, um, I guess, technically Morrisville, but between Durham and Raleigh and covering the Triangle area and all of the Eastern uh, Seaboard as we think about companies that they may be potentially investing in. Um, As many of you probably know, this is our first venture capital fund on the show. Um, so it's a little bit different than what we typically had in the past, and I'm really excited to bring a new perspective to what entrepreneurship looks like here in North Carolina. Tom and Keith, thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, thank you, Angela. Awesome. So for people who may be interested in venture capital or just learning about how venture capital works and operates to support entrepreneurs, I don't want you guys to give me a whole history on venture capitalism by any stretch of the imagination, but why specifically you guys started Resilient Ventures with the aim of specifically investing in African-American entrepreneurs and high growth startups? So I'll, I'll, um, again, thanks for having us on. We love telling our stories. Tom and I lived here in Durham and combined over 70 years and I have a long history of family in this community. I grew up in Washington, D.C., but... My parents and going several generations back have been here at Durham. So um, sort of sitting here in this black legacy space um, makes it very inviting to think about ownership and entrepreneurship. Uh, I came here for college, did um, Duke University, and the world got open, a lot of a lot of different perspectives. But I worked at the business school for several years and I ran a summer institute for high school students for about 20 years. And during that time, it just got more and more excited about seeing young people uh, with aspirations and goals and dreams, quote, the American dream, um, be able to make a good for their, their life. Um, and, uh, increasingly over time, the conversation um, went more from like working in corporate America to, you know, running your own business. And, and then the reality started to sit in around what it takes to, to raise money and to raise capital to scale a business. You know, fast forward up until like 2015 when Tom and I started walking uh, deliberately together around questions as it relates to faith and justice and wealth building um, across the color line, as we call it. You know, him again being uh, racist white and me being African-American and coming from uh, many ways, very different directions, um, experiences in life. Him having run his own business for years and, 
increasingly become more of sort of the privileges he had and then me addressing all the hits um, that are black men based in America. But uh, we looked at the numbers. I mean, most of life is looking at the numbers. The, uh, we always talk about analytics and the reality is, you know, 90, 97, 98% of uh, capital going to white founders, the historic injustice around and the reality around that, how the systems are set up not to really help us get ahead. And we, to cut the story somewhat short, after a lot of deliberation, a lot of walking with small communities of people around the question of race and faith, realized we had access to wealth and we had a really large network, as I said, being in one community for 70 plus years. If you're doing something right, it means you've got some friends in high places, low places, and in between. And we felt like we could start a committed capital fund that's that, that gap in high-growth African-American balance. Without explaining the venture is in a very long-winded way, <clears throat> what I will say and help your readers to understand is venture is for a specific kind of company that's growing very, very fast. So like if I go on a bike ride for 100 or 200 miles, I have to eat a lot more than normal, right? You really have to, your body is going to demand it. So if you're going fast or far quickly, you need more capital, you need more food to grow. So <clears throat> there's a lot of high growth companies that can't fund their growth by say, um, uh, getting a loan on capital equipment that the bank will hold for you. So like if you're a service-based business that you, know, you buy dump trucks to run a paving company, then you can fund that with a bank loan because the bank will take your truck as collateral. But in many areas of high growth, there's no collateral for software. Or if you're creating something out of nothing, there's no bank that's going to give you money for your idea if it's not supported by some kind of collateral. So that's where venture comes in. You're looking at companies that plan to grow really, really fast. They want to grow fast. They've got good prospects for, for creating revenue. But it's a very special kind of bonding. Thank you for making that distinction. And thank you, Keith, for giving us those numbers. As you said, you guys have collectively 70 plus years here in the Triangle. And so when you guys were coming together and thinking about how you could work together to create a solution to the funding gap for high growth startups for African-Americans, in a previous talk, you guys mentioned that one of the questions you got was, well, will there be enough people to invest in? So can you tell me a little bit about how you guys collectively work together to address that and answer that and are still working towards meeting that need now and having those conversations around, like, here are the type of companies that we invest in, here's what we're looking for, and really putting the proposition out there of how you can attract businesses that fit that model. Well, I started out at RTP Capital in a very, you know, race-based, race-as-white kind of organization. And this is about almost six or eight years ago. And we weren't seeing any African-American founders come through that organization. We did finally see one come through. And I did invest in him along with another person. And it was really through that person. This was long before we were even thinking about doing Brazilian Ventures. It was through that person, you know, six, eight years ago, that he even discovered the language and high growth entrepreneurs. And then I just started following that rabbit trail, building relations across the color line, so to speak, 
and discovering. And so, you know, once you take the effort to build relationships and go into another community, <clears throat> the hiddenness is opened up to you. So it was basically through that, I would say. Well, yeah, deal flow. That's, again, I should emphasize that Tom and I both have operated in two different worlds. So Tom, having run a software company for 30 years, been active as an angel investor, and has actually been very intentional about the lack of opportunity and network where there is exposure for or geniuses is what I call them. I mean, we know there's no lack of geniuses in our community. It's just amazing the people we meet and the 11 companies we funded, they all, we knew they were out there. I mean, part of the challenge is how far mm -hmm. along are they to be ready for investor capital at our stage, right? Because we're looking for founders who have revenue, who've already established a level of market fit. Um, and so that means that you've been bootstrapping, they've found ways to be creative and to have a level of scale, but they need that extra boost of cash, like Tom says. When Tom mentioned the cycling metaphor, just to, again, for the audience say, technically, our lives have been under a lot of uh, aspirational stress when it comes to such. So you may hear a lot of these different metaphors. Tom's a long distance cyclist and he got me active in it. I'd done some long distance cycling prior to that, but not, not with a group and certainly not in any sustained way. I had a career in college athletics as a football player. But I think you start to understand that there are leagues of spaces that just we don't get access to. I mean, I'm one of few African-American cyclists that I still leave it know in this area, and I know there are groups out there. But how well resourced are they? You know, what kind of, I just, I don't know it. But I know they're there. <laughs> it's just a matter of saying, I'm going to go find these groups and, and see where they are. When we started out, we didn't explicitly say we'd only look in the Carolinas. We'd look, we would look within spaces where we have relationships. And though we've been here 70 years, we have relationships that extend beyond this immediate region. So most of our companies have been in the Carolinas. Out of the 11, I guess like seven of them either started here or in Carolina. But then through our larger network, we were able to identify some great founders in other parts of the country, Detroit and Atlanta. Again, some of these other cities and ecosystems have been growing and building tremendously over a period of the last decade or so with a great intentionality, whether you're going to Tulsa or Birmingham or Chicago uh, or some other major cities. But we know here in the South, there's still the reality of the South and how we transition into this historic space of both opportunity and a lot of headwinds when it comes to biases around who's fundable and what risk we want to take on certain founders. So that's part of the narrative too. Going back to the difference between seeking venture capital investment and going to seek a bank loan for a business expense or a business need, depending on the type of business that you run. One really big, I would say, well-known business owner, Pinky Cole, just did a Series B round, I think. And she, I think, had the highest grossing Series B round of any Black woman founder. But that story is so rare, right? We're not seeing a lot of stories of similar success across the board. And even still, her story as essentially a service-based business, she's a restaurant owner, isn't really the typical company that people would invest in in terms of venture capital. 
because it isn't necessarily considered a high growth startup. It is a service-based business model. So when we think about, you know, how can we still create models of scale within different industries, but also create ecosystems that support people who are seeking to do something that is more software or tech-based, what are some of the conversations you are having and have had over the years in terms of how not only you can invest in these ecosystems and these businesses and these companies and these startups, but how you can also develop a pipeline of businesses that are ready and seeking that type of funding that could be in a position to seek that type of funding. Yeah, I just wanted to speak to the first point you made about the person that had the Series B investment. So there is a group out of New York City. He may have moved down to Miami. Harlem Capital is one of the leading African-American sort of venture firms. And one of the things he's known for is producing some real uh, analytics. And he had a recent report that came out last uh, November. And he specifically details how many black founders raised more than a million dollars. There's almost 400. There's almost 400 African-American founders that raised more than there's 38 firms that have invested in 10 or more founders of color. So this is, an, this is a snapshot of the American BC market. There have been 11 unicorns. So a unicorn in this language is talking about a company that gets to a billion dollar valuation. And there's been 11 of those. And there's been 60 founders have raised more than $100 million. So those are past, I'm not sure about the restaurant owner, I am not aware of that person that you're talking about, but that's the kind of numbers that we're talking about. Um, yet the uh, the situation is that's just a drop in the bucket in the VC world. That's less than 2%. And while a number of organizations made objectives after George Floyd to do something about this, a lot of that is not coming, it's not whatever you want to call it. It's not being fulfilled. In the third quarter, 2022, while typically investment in black founders is in between one and a half and 2% of the total, it dropped to 0.12%. So I don't know if you saw that come out, but there's been a precipitous drop in even, from even what it, the low value that it was before. So while it's clear that you know, African-Americans can build billion-dollar businesses, it's still tough to get funding. Yeah, what, I think what I'm hearing, and I might be offering you a question, one of the things I think a lot about as relates to this particular way we decided we would start up. We would start up a fund. We seek to find strong teams that have demonstrated a level of resilience and a level of growth. But to the question of what is a thesis of a, a firm's thesis, if once you decide, okay, we're going to invest in this particular sector because this sector holds this much market space that, that demands opportunity or that invites opportunity for innovation and growth, I think those are some of the realities that funds are doing. You know, um, and it creates a, some degree of limitation as a, when you look across like sectors where there is a level of black or black and brown participation and innovation, right? When with our first fund, we determined that we would invest in a restaurant owner. 
Dean Cafe in particular. And it was primarily based off the founders of resilience and innovation. He just epitomizes that. But most people kind of look at us a little bit, you know, eyebrows raised, eyes crossed. Funds don't do that. They don't they don't invest in what is a what characterizes a main street model. But that's where we gave some consideration to the importance of these types of businesses because if we were able to create maybe a sidecar or some kind of fund that was, you know, we even looked at that prospect, right? Because again, we have to recruit LPs, limited partners, who feel like there is going to be a double-digit return on their capital. And they're looking for that exit, whether it's necessarily fast or not so fast, because we're very upfront about the long-term nature of this type of investing. So you're having to battle like, okay, where are we going to focus our capital deployment strategies? And that's been a learning experience for us as well. We've been diverse by intention and by opportunity based on who we've seen and how we feel that they can address the market need and the growth potential. And so we've been open to being taught by the entrepreneurs, help us understand your business model, where you're going. So the entrepreneurs are savvy. We have to be very savvy in their conversations with us about where they feel like they can take the business. And that takes some training and time, talking with mentors and advisors who are skilled in the sectors. There's a lot that goes into it. And so we, our aspiration, again, going back to your question, is that our ideal is like we can bring that to the entrepreneur. Like if they don't have all the pieces in place in terms of advisors or networks or we want to bring that, obviously we want to do that because our money is literally on the line. So we want to come take any undue risk that in a lot of cases, white founders like kind of automatically have by point of privilege, right? Not only access to wealth aspect, but like to really skilled advisors and folks that help them, that can help them build. And then if they make multiple mistakes, they can fairly well recover from it because they have that kind of support behind them. Some way of getting at your question is like, no, we're not gonna we can't consistently invest in a really picky coal. I mean, in some ways it's like we can't just sit back like as sharks and say, oh, we've got this amazing founder with some secret sauce, quote unquote, to use the pun as it relates to food, that is going to be able to drive a really unique product, right? In a very competitive landscape, what, you know, what are we going to decide to do? How much do we want to own that company? How much do we feel like we can dictate in that space? Again, Tom and I don't have that kind of expertise. Or if we bring other investors to the table, and try to co-invest in something like that, then we got to now still kind of figure out like what is our position in that. And that's probably been the biggest challenge for us when I reflect on our work is the diversity of the businesses and just how much we can, to a degree, have a real value add beyond, oh, we just wrote a big check and we're hoping it does well. This episode was recorded using Riverside. Riverside is an incredible video recording and live streaming tool for video podcasters and video creators. With the ability to record videos up to 4K resolution, all participants have access to active local backups, which make poor internet connections and lagging audio a thing of the past. If you're ready to upgrade the audio and video quality of your show, please be sure to check out the link in the description to experience Riverside for yourself. Now, back to the show. I think that's getting at the core of where the crux is for venture capitalists, both on the funders and the people seeking funding side of things, because for them, 
let's say somebody in, in the tech space or even in the restaurant space or in, um, so even biotech, maybe, I don't know if people invest in that, but I'm sure they do, excuse me. But it's just a niche space. And sometimes I think a lot of companies that do well or maybe are well known have the ability to attract the kind of funders that see the vision, they understand them, they understand who they are as a person, what the mission of their company is, that sort of thing. And the same can be said for Dorian, who is the founder of BE Cafe. I mean, like, his story is very well known. His commitment to Durham is very well known. His presence is ever-growing and ever-expanding. He just got a spot in RDU Airport. His spot downtown is still doing well. He got a spot at Boshart RTP. I mean, the guy's everywhere, right? You can't miss him. So if he were to go up and try to do another series round, I'm sure he would do well. Just based off of the fact that he has a clear vision, clear execution, clear plan, and has already shown that he can garner the support that he needs, right? I think for tech startups, for people in that space who might be seeking venture capital, one, it's harder to grow that personal brand, right? Because your product is, by nature, has a distance between you and your customer, right? There's a very big difference between starting in your room on your computer and starting on a food truck out in the street every day meeting people, right? Those are two very different experiences for the customer, for the end user. So when it comes to thinking about the relationship that people have with money, number one, and then with access, and then with access to funds, I think it becomes um, difficult to bank on having a fulfilling relationship that is solely based off of or that starts largely in part two venture capital if you haven't started bootstrapping, number one. And I think uh, Arlen Hamilton has spoken to this. Like, yes, if you seek funds, there's nothing wrong with seeking venture capital, but also know how to bootstrap your business, right? Also know how to put yourself out there and network and make money and make a product that people like and enjoy and want to use and want to rave about because, you know, they're looking for the same thing. They're looking for somebody that has a clear vision, has a clear execution, and ultimately, it's going to make their investors money, you know, it's going to make a return on their investment. But again, I think to fantasize about having a billion dollar valuation is also very hard for, <laughs> for many black founders, women founders, minority founders, whoever, because it's just so rare. And it still doesn't mean that you don't need to make money. I think there's still that aspect of it as well. You still need to make money and know how to make money. So kind of moving on into developing relationships and really creating a well-rounded portfolio, both for yourself and helping the people that you invest in have the resources that they need. What are some of the main needs that you have seen from the 11 companies that you've invested in so far? So while Dorian has a good name, a reputation, everything that you said, and he has bootstrapped, I just want to clarify that Everything you said about what you got from Arlen, the sense that if you're trying to raise money, you're probably going to have to bootstrap. That is very true. And even in the case for someone like Dorian, it is not at all easy for Dorian to raise even what he's been raising. So while it may seem like he could go out and get his Series A, we're still in a place where it's very difficult for him to get a Series A. So to ask, to answer what your question, the greatest need you said the greatest need besides money. Well, the greatest need is money, actually. The greatest need is money. And so 
that is our belief, honestly, that it's not the ability of entrepreneurs that's in question. It's not that they need more mentoring or they need to go through more programs or they need more coaching. What they need is access to capital. They need access. They deserve access to capital. They deserve access to the same networks and the opportunities that are in the greater mostly races, white ecosystem. So um, even while we're a small fund or even while we're in the middle of raising our second fund, so we don't have any capital to deploy right now. So we, we can't help people with money from our LPs right now, but we can help them raise money. And we do that through our network and our relationships. And that's, I think, actually <clears throat> one of the biggest things we help companies is not is by introductions to other VCs, other angel investors who can get them money or specific expertise that they would need. And we're just doing that. We've been doing that this a week ago. There is that, I mentioned about entrepreneurs, savvy. I use the word savvy. We call it resilience. Resilience, I mean, the name wasn't just, we didn't pick it out of the hat. It was like, yeah, you have to have, we're counting on your past, your history of, running a business to demonstrate that you can grow it. But that's an interesting thing because it's like, um, I mean, I'll just go back to the sports example because it's fresh on my mind. And unfortunately, it's fresh on my mind. I haven't played football that there was a young man who almost died on the field recently. Hopefully he's going to recover. But when I went from high school to college, I immediately realized, okay, this ain't high school no more. The level of preparation, the level of uh, training and all of that was like, oh my goodness, I had no idea it was this fast. It was this much more complex system of offense and defense. Everything was ratcheted up. So yeah, you still need, you need another level of coaching and advisement of people who see the field better than you do when it comes to your sector. They can ask you tougher questions and won't let you off the hook with those questions. When you talk about how are you going to use your money? I mean, it's got to be like very nuanced about, oh, how that gets you to scale. So how do you talk about milestones? Like here are my milestones. So that's what I've been learning is like the need is, oh, I need to really think. And we were on a call with a um, one of our founders we've invested in in previous opportunities. And he's looking at this really great new opportunity. And um, it was fun to sit there and listen. You know, Tom was asking in particular questions that I necessarily would have thought to ask. Because we, we will understand, like, okay, you're going to use this money for what? Oh, mostly for that? Now, some of us be like, no, I'm not investing for you to do that. <laughs> but if you can prove to me but that what you're going to do is going to get you to these, like, major milestones that shows how you actually are going to grow the company, now we can talk. And we talk about things like getting to know, like, part of it is, like, how quickly are we to get to know of the investment if we don't feel like the risks are too high? So what... Founders need is a lot of wisdom and a lot of intelligence around these kinds of use of funds, milestone questions. Yeah, demonstrated, quote unquote, we say traction and track record, right, to be able to scale. So that's that's what we spend. And it's a grind. I mean, the due diligence process, like we've learned a lot about questions that we maybe should have had on the table before, and now we're finding out. We didn't. And so there is that dance between you and the founder around what is a, uh, a as ideal of a win-win situation when it comes to the kind of investment capital that they need, right? Um, 
And we've been flexible without it. And I think Tom and I have tried to approach this, even though we have conflicts and butt head around what looks like the right kind of investment, whether it's a revenue share, or it's a, you know, whether it take a price round, if we're going to look at a convertible capitalization, all of that comes into the complexity of the deal. Yes. Thank you both for making those clarifications. One thing that I'm hearing from both of you is that, yes, black founders need money, but they also need to be specific and do their due diligence and developing a way to best communicate how that money is going to be used. And that does take time. But by the time that they're seeking venture capital, that's not the time to say you need more mentoring. That's the time to say, is this person primed to use this money effectively? Right. Um, And that brings me to another conversation about doing due diligence, not just venture capital funds doing due diligence on businesses, but businesses doing due diligence on venture capital funds. You know, how has their relationship been with other companies that they've invested in? What are their areas of expertise that they could add to my business right now and fill the gaps that I may have in my long-term vision or like 30,000 foot view of where this is going and where we are now, right? And those are harder questions I think that I would have never even thought to ask if I was thinking venture capital. Because I think for Black founders or any founder that is not accustomed to having access to these types of networks, but you guys have both spoke about these longstanding intergenerational wealth networks, essentially, um, you know, you may not be accustomed to how to ask for money, right? And then also understanding when to say no to certain money because it's just not the right fit for you and really continue to seek money that is the right fit for you. Um, so when it comes to developing transparency about how you best work with the companies that you have invested in and want to invest in the future, what are some ways that you communicate that to companies that come to you for funding? And what are some ways that you have tried to communicate that to each other as you've learned and grown throughout this process of doing your first, uh, series fund round? Well, I just think about the question of trust. I mean, all relationships, the, the quality of any relationship is going to go so far as trust is built. You say transparency. We don't want to waste an entrepreneur's time. I mean, we want to try to be very frank if we feel like it's an investable deal or not. I mean, um, we have a process that we work together to develop. People talk about starting a business on a napkin. You know, you hear about people start business in their garage. In many ways, Tom and I, when we were thinking about this, we thought about a lot of different metaphors. Um, for example, we know that there, we used the Jackie Robinson metaphor that there was a whole league of Negro players long before, uh, you know, very talented, extreme pool of players that were out there that the opportunity and the consideration that they played in the major leagues may, may not have been a real dream until Jackie Robinson was called up to the major leagues and paid that way. So it's about believing in people, right? When you encounter a person and they have an idea and they have a passion and saying, hey, I'd love to see that be successful for you. How can I help? Um, and we have a generous heart. I mean, we come at this from a faith perspective, by the way, and, and for audiences. I mean, many people will look at us and maybe look at our backgrounds and say, you guys didn't come out of you know, some MBA programs with a finance career and, and et cetera. Um, so we we are banking on the relationship, like we we, and not not that singularly, but it takes time to kind of get to know a founder and, and 
understand their team, who have been around them. And again, it, it is what we call the network effect. People say it's not what you know, it's who you know, actually it's both. I mean, if you don't know anything, you can know a lot of people and not get very far. So we look to our trusted relationships. We have an advisory team of incredible people who say to us, hey, check out this founder, check out this company, check out this business. Um, and we have an investment committee that once we actually get them in the room and we start asking questions, they, they don't pull punches. <laughs> we can rely on them to ask hard questions when, in addition to making sure we don't miss the question. So yeah, sometimes I sort of hesitate when responding to certain kinds of questions because you know, we are, as a 50, I'm 50, I'll be 55 this year. Tom's got a few years on me. And I mean, we've done a lot of life in a lot of different contexts, whether it's like our faith communities, our charitable communities, and we're at the stage of life now. We want to, we have aspirations to make money and, and build wealth for our own well-being. But it's like we're looking at great people. Um, and I'll just say this again about this young man who uh, was like was on the line playing football. We know that he's more than a football player. I mean, we're finding more about his life than we ever would normally because we look at these. You know, we look at folks who are highly successful um, and we know how hard it is to get there. We use the metaphor, even the example of, I might've had a better shot having played college football with making it, making 500,000 in the NFL than I necessarily, I could have raised 500,000 for a company. And that's kind of crazy to think about because we talked about how, remember I said before, going from high school to college was one thing. Now going from college to the pros, I mean, there's a lot of talent left out of that never make it that far. So again, your question makes me think, that's why I say I hesitate, because it makes me think life is about believing in people, but then also really the challenges of what it means to, as Tom said, Dorian, great culture, great vibe. But if he's going to get out there and be successful, it's going to be because he's got all these other um, systems at work for him that are working against the system that suggests that a black restaurateur really can't compete with a Starbucks or compete with any other of the myriad of cafe companies that are out there. So, yeah, that's kind of the heart. Again, it's messy. That's why I say I pause because we it's not, we don't want to say we're believing in the underdog because we're like, no, that's not right. I mean, it's like these incredibly talented people that deserve opportunity for capital. And they're not getting in certain rooms or given really serious consideration unless somebody's very intentional about it. Um, and that takes time. It just it just does. It takes months for us to, before we make a, only a few of our deals happen, what I call relatively quickly in terms of the diligence process, understanding the business model, and getting behind the, the makings of the business and that sort of thing. So it's not by any means just glamorous to be a VC. It's telling people no is hard. I mean, you know, getting their more no's and their yeses. Yeah. Tom, did you want to add anything? Well, on the question of trust, once you are in relationship with an investor, it is best to be as forthcoming with what's going on as possible. There's no sense in hiding bad news from a VC or an investor. It will be found out, and then when it's found out, it'll be worse, and they can't help you. So 
you know, the best time to go um, is sooner when things start to look dire or even your concerns. Well, that was a more of a dour note that I wanted to end on, but I appreciate your honesty. <laughs> I appreciate you guys taking the time to sit down with me today and talk about the reality that is venture capital investing and the challenges and opportunities and excitement that lies ahead for your next series and the next round of companies and entrepreneurs and founders that you'll get to meet. Hopefully some of them will be people listening to this show right now here in North Carolina and beyond. Thank you guys again so much for joining us. Again, this is Tom and Keith of Resilient Ventures, and I can't wait to see what they do next.